we've been going through 1 Thessalonians uh, as a letter, and we are exploring a spirituality for the long haul. Uh, we have this sense of, of following Jesus until our last breath requires a great deal from us. And so we wonder, how are we going to get there? Are we going to make it? Will our faith sustain? Because we don't know what's going to come our way. We don't know the unexpected twists and turns that life might bring our way. And so we're concerned. Will we make it? How do we get there? At this point in the letter, Paul does what he does in many of his letters. He lays first a foundation of the gospel. He reminds his readers, he reminds us, that God has saved us by grace through faith. This is called justification. We're put in a right relationship with God, not by anything we can do, but by the faithfulness of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Paul did this in chapter one. God chose you, brothers and sisters, and he loves you and he dwells with you. Paul lays this foundation first before moving on to the topic of sanctification which is growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, living in response to what we've received. And he does it in this order for a variety of reasons. The main one being this. If we focus too much on who we have to become, we'll start thinking that salvation is somehow earned. First, we have to be freed and liberated and know that God accepts us in Christ, that God is pleased with us in Christ, that there is nothing we can do to increase or decrease his love for us, that even at our worst, he loved us. This has to get into our hearts before we proceed a conversation about how we change, how we grow, a conversation what some call the ethics of the New Testament. Because otherwise, we're going to start thinking that God is more concerned about these things than he is about us. So, why does this matter? Why do we need to talk about our growth in holiness? Why do we need to talk about changing in Christ? Because if our spirituality doesn't change us, what good is it? If it doesn't actually make a difference in our lives, how will it hold up for the long haul in our bodies? And if the change isn't actually witnessed by the world, what good is it? Brendan Manning uh, puts it this way. The greatest single cause of atheism... In the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, this is a good caution, but it can also produce an unhelpful guilt. Right? We, don't, we don't want to get in the, the habit of pointing our fingers at some abstract church because we're the church. But he expresses a weight we feel of we want a faith that makes a difference in our lives, a faith that people would look at and say, this actually changes things. And sometimes we wonder, is it? Is it? We grow in holiness. Christ changes us as he also grows us in God's mission. We're not just changed for our own sake. As we're changed, we're also changed for the sake of the world. Holiness and mission are always meant to be held together. And so as we look into uh, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to move now into talking about our growth in Christ. And here's the big idea I want to explore in this chapter. God's will for us is to become more like Christ with our bodies and with our time so that the world can see his beauty through us. So let's pick up 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting in verse 1. 
Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You'll note that Paul isn't just asking, he's urging. It's urgent. This is important. It's not a back burner issue. Paul is saying, look, your faithfulness yesterday, it was important, but we cannot bank on our past faithfulness. Today is the day the Lord has made, the psalmists declare. The author of Hebrews says, today, while you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your hearts. Scripture is always concerned about the day at hand, not how you performed yesterday. Every single day, day after day, we're called to walk in a way, Paul says, that pleases the Lord more and more. And we could add more and more and more. And suddenly, this can start sounding burdensome because we know uh, many of us in this room are quite young. We know we might have upwards of, I don't know, five to ten years at least uh, left in our lives. And so we know this requires a lot. We have to please the Lord every day. What's required of us? We don't, we feel burdened. But it's not meant to be burdensome. It's not meant to be burdensome. Paul writes in Romans 8.8 that outside of a relationship with Jesus, we cannot please God. We cannot. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible without faith to please God. But when we place our faith in Christ, God is pleased with us. Nothing we can do can earn his pleasure. Rather, we seek to please God because we want to experience what the ancient Israelites called God's face shining upon us, God's face radiating upon us, his good pleasure surrounding and enveloping us. That's why we seek to please him, because it's pleasurable for him. Faith working through love is another way Paul puts it. The only thing that's pleasing to God is our faith expressing itself in love. We've already discussed in this series how the gospel, it liberates us from our people-pleasing tendencies. You know, when, we're at, we're, when we're constantly seeking one another's approval, we don't have a, a centered self. We don't have a strong self-worth. We're, we're constantly worried if we're actually pleasing those around us. And Paul says, alternatively, seek to please God. And now he's drawing out this theme again. He's saying, please God with your lives. This is what it means to grow in holiness. And I think we can turn to a human example for this. On my best days, I want to please Julia. You know, I want to serve her and I want to care for her and I want to make sure that our children and Julia grow up in a home with love and joy, uh, music and dancing. And on bad days, you know, I might be seeking to please Julia to win some affection. But on good days, you know, I'm, I'm seeking to please her simply because I enjoy seeing her pleased. I enjoy her smile. I enjoy seeing her happy. My own happiness doesn't depend upon it. I already know our relationship's secure. I seek to please her because it's pleasing to see her pleased. And so we seek to please God because it's pleasing to see God's face shine. We don't do it to earn his affection. He already loves us. He already loves us. And this is why it's so important to understand justification as our fuel for sanctification. When we understand the lengths that God has gone to to express uh, his love for us, 
that he redeemed us, not when we had our lives together, but Paul says, while we were enemies, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we wanted nothing to do with God, God loved us and pursued us and saved us. When that grips us, then we can talk about pleasing God. Because we know he's pleased with us. He's brought us into his family. He loves us. The capstone of what Paul says, we see in verse 2 and 3. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to emphasize this a few times. What he is saying, he is saying, not I, but Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. I've met with many people, young and old, who come and ask me the question, like I've got the Holy Spirit bat phone, like what is the will of God for my life? And more often than not, they mean, what does God want me to do with my life? What vocation should I pursue with my life? And I love that Paul gives us an explicit answer. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. Write that on your heart. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. I might dare say that God is more concerned about who you're becoming than what you're doing. Because if you're becoming more like Jesus, you will be equipped in such a way to discern with the people of God what you should be doing with your life. God's will for you is your sanctification. God's will for you is your holiness. God's will is that you would love more and like more and care more and serve more and encourage more and give more like Jesus day after day after day, more and more and more and more. That's it. That's all he wants of you. That's what's pleasing to God. And in turn, that's actually what's pleasing to us. But this is not the end of Paul's train of thought. Christian philosopher and professor whom I like, James K.A. Smith, uh, wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and he makes a brilliant argument in it. He says that people are not fundamentally thinking beings, uh, which might come as a surprise. You know, most of our institutions of education, we work on just like dumping data into your brain and trust that transformation will be the result. And this is partially true, but Smith even argues we're not just believing beings. We're fundamentally desiring beings. And what we do with our minds, it matters. What we believe matters. But also what we do with our bodies and our times, the rituals that we participate in day after day from brushing our teeth to going to bed, which hopefully happens three times a day, my dentist tells me. But these rituals will shape over time how you think. These rituals will shape your subconscious so that it's actually shaping your conscious mind. So yes, God wants to renew our minds. Paul says in Romans, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can discern what is the good and acceptable will of God. You get transformed in your mind by dwelling in Scripture, by hearing it proclaimed, by giving your life and opening your life to Scripture. And we are renewed as we present our bodies and our time to God. This also helps renew our souls and our minds. And so as Paul says, the will of God for your life is sanctification. He's not happy to leave it in the realm of abstraction. He gives us two examples, one that involves our bodies and the other that involves time. One of the example is sex and the other one is work, and I'll let you decide which goes in which category. Let's start with sex. You guys are really slow this morning, St. Peter's. That was a good joke. Come on. (laughs) Paul says, for this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Yes, my friends, it's time we had the sex talk. (laughs) 
We're going to talk about abstinence. Paul says that we abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea. Say that with me. Pornea. A little more excitement. Pornea. What does that sound like? Familiar? Someone shouted it out. Good on you. I have been asked many times, why are Christians so obsessed with sex and what other people do with their sexual desires? And my retort is, why is our culture so obsessed with sex? Because I hear more messaging from our culture day in and day out, whether it's Netflix or billboards, about what I should do with my body and how I should express my sexuality than I find in the pages of Scripture or even from Christians' mouths in public. Scripture teaches unashamedly that sex is good and it's beautiful. Sex is good and beautiful and that God has given it constraints to help it remain good and beautiful. Some might call these constraints regressive, but God's aim in giving them is for life and love. And Paul himself teaches quite frequently about how we should handle our bodies when it comes to sexual desires and activities, not because Paul is somehow obsessed with sex, but because he's pastoring Christians within a culture that's obsessed with sex. If you don't believe me, let's turn to uh, two examples from the, the Greek-Roman period that help describe what the sexual practices in Rome were like, uh, and especially in Thessalonica during Paul's time. Demosthenes, uh, I can't speak. Demosthenes was a politician and renowned public speaker who lived in the 4th century. Here's what he wrote. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day -day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. I've yet to meet a couple to use that as their marriage vows. <laughs> the Roman poet Horace in the first century BC left us this poem. If your groin is swelling and a housemaid or slave boy is at hand arousing constant desire, do you prefer to burst with tension? Not me. I enjoy love that is enjoyable and easy. Apparently it's better in the Greek. Uh, I doubt it. The ancient Roman culture had no conception of women's rights or even children's rights as we understand it today. We might think we are a sexually uh, liberated or progressive society, but Rome has us topped. And today, we would actually look at their culture and say, no, this is a, a rape culture. This is, this is unhealthy. But to them, it was their norm. And it was even infused into many of their public and private practices and even into many of the cultural religions of the time. Monogamy was practically non-existent and abstinence would have been even more ludicrous to them than it sounds to us today. So what Paul was writing then was just as unpopular as some of you are feeling about it now. What I find interesting is that in speaking about sexual immorality, which is just this blanket term that can capture everything. Paul doesn't list out a do's and don'ts. He, he simply says, abstain from sexual immorality. Know how to control your body in holiness and purity, not in the passion of lust. That's the instruction. Apparently, that is sufficient instruction for how to navigate the sexual tensions we feel uh, in this world and in our bodies. And God, he wants us to grow in Christ-likeness, which means honoring him with our bodies and what we do with them. So if you just blindly adopt all of the sexual practices of our culture, you're not going to be representing Christ. 
And Paul doesn't understate this point at all. Look at, uh, jump ahead, verse 7 and 8. He writes, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul is making the claim that these instructions about how to handle our sexual desires, how to handle our bodies, are not just his own fabrication, but from God himself. That's the claim Paul's making. In other words, listen up. This matters. This is significant in your growth in Christ-likeness. And so what are our options in a nutshell? There's two options before us. Sex is reserved for marriage and abstinence uh, and and refraining from any form of sexual activity uh, is the option if you're not married. That's it. Two options. That's the consistent vision in Scripture. But I want to address a few ways this impacts all of us, because it does impact all of us. First, if you're single, let me speak to you. Uh, You'll notice that throughout this series, I have so far, and I probably will continue to do this, quoted John Stott in every single sermon, because John Stott is just the man, and he's brilliant, and he speaks into culture in such a profound way. Uh, But what many of you might not know about uh, John Uh, because we were best friends. Uh, People called him Uncle John. This was a a, a common, you can read uh, people in their forwards dedicate books to Uncle John, and this is John Stott. He was single until the day he died at 90. And so rather than, uh, as a married man with children, give you advice about how to handle your singleness, I want to read at length something that uh, Uncle John wrote from his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. We shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided we submit to it. It's possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness accompanied sometimes by an acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God in other people. Now, if you're in a relationship, I want to just make a few suggestions for how you engage with people's singleness. Uh, There's a few things that uh, an article I read said that we could refrain from saying as an act of love towards our single brothers and sisters. Uh, Here's one. Don't worry, it'll happen. You don't know that. (laughs) You're too awesome to be single. That's not helpful. You can call me awesome, but don't say that to other people. (laughs) You're so lucky. Don't say that. Don't you want to get married? (laughs) (laughs) Or a friend of mine was on a date recently, and the the guy said, uh, just a word of advice for future dates. It might help if you dress sexier. These are things you should not say uh, to single people. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can do. Develop a relationship of deep affection and trust and love, which will then provide the context for any conversation about the person's singleness. If they want to bring it up, they will. Just like if I want to talk about my marriage with you, I will. You can't do anything about it. (laughs) And hear me on this, because this is for all of us. Marriage is not a rival in the Christian life. 
Marriage is not a rival in the Christian life. Marriage and singleness equally reveal aspects of the image of God to all of us, and we need both examples in the church. So if you're single, I want you to know we see you, and I'm trying my best to listen to you and hear your needs and your concerns, and I hope we can create a culture that embraces singleness not as uh, some sort of uh, thing to be cured of, but something that is an expression of who God has made you to be in this moment of time. Thank you for being here and for all you contribute to our church. Now, if you've been dating and you're wondering, well, how far can I go, you know? You're wanting a, a list of do's and don'ts. The moment you've asked this question, you've shown your cards. You're more concerned about pleasing yourself than you are about pleasing God. The question should never be, what can I get away with? But how do I honor God in my relationship? How do I honor the person I'm dating in holiness and purity? And if you need uh, some of the more nuanced detail of that, I'm not the person to talk to. Don Lewis is, and he'd be happy to help you figure that out. (laughs) But here's the thing, and I'm convinced of this because I have dated before. The Holy Spirit will not let you down. You will know when you are approaching a line of inappropriateness, and I guarantee you, you will know when you've crossed it. The important part is not perfection, but repentance. If you've crossed those lines, repent. Try again. Try again. Now, for those of us who are married, Scripture also doesn't give us an approved checklist. It gives some suggestions in the Song of Solomon, but thanks be to God, that's not what we're preaching right now. Sex is good, and it can glorify God. But Paul gives us the same principle. Honor your your spouse with, with holiness and purity. Control your body. Don't give yourself over to the lusts of the Gentiles. In other words, even within marriage, there's still constraints around sex. It's not a free-for-all. You don't get to indulge in every wild fantasy. It still needs to be mutually upbuilding and loving. I would be remiss, however, not to address how pornea is linked to pornography. Whether you're married or single, male or female, the ritual of indulging in pornography affects more people in this room than you probably can fathom. Various studies are showing the effects of pornography on marriage, on sexual interest, and even on the brain. You can go to enough.org. Uh, to learn more about these studies. They're, they're sobering and they're heartbreaking. And it's important to talk about this as a church because I know many of you are feeling shame, embarrassment, confusion, maybe even hopelessness. And if you're caught in the cycle and you can't seem to get out of the, the ritual of indulging in it, I just want you to know we're here for you. We want you to know that you can bring this to light. And so if you're Male, I'm happy to speak with you after the service, or Scott Newfeld, he'll be at the front here. He'd be happy to speak with you. If you want some more privacy, you can email Scott, and he'd be happy to discern next steps with you. If you're female and you're struggling with this, Marley Campbell's happy to meet with you after the service, or you can email her, and together we'll discern how do you walk forward from this point. I'm not going to tell you uh, that you need to do X, Y, or Z. What I'm telling you is you need a relationship to help you move forward. Lastly, for those of us who either have been sexually immoral in our past, and I don't stand above that, and maybe you still feel some guilt about that, or if you're being sexually immoral in the present, 
I want to speak to you. Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say it with me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When a woman was caught in adultery, Scripture emphasizes, in the very act, so either entirely nude or partially nude, she's dragged into a court of men trying to discern if she should be stoned to death. Eventually they all leave. You know this story. What does Jesus say to her? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, if you're caught up in acts that you know are dishonoring your body, that if you know they're not honoring God in the way you should, the the solution is not behavior modification. Yes, it would be better for you to stop, but it won't be enough. Grace needs to precede our transformation. You need to understand that in the very act of whatever you're doing, Christ does not stand above you to condemn you, but stands with you offering grace. Grace needs to precede our transformation. He offers you grace in the very act. That is what we want to fuel our change. That's what we want to fuel our behavior transformation. Just keeping the rules won't be enough. It's just going to create more shame and guilt each time you struggle and fail. Grace, when it grips you, will be what you need. But the deeper question I've found is why? Why do we prefer to engage in sexual immorality rather than abstain from it? Douglas Copeland is a Vancouver-based author and artist. You might remember recently he had a uh, a show at the Vancouver Art Gallery and they had the big head of him outside and you could put gum on it. Uh, And he wrote a book called Generation X and he reflects on what it's like to grow up in Cascadia, to grow up in this region. And here's something he wrote. Starved for affection, terrified of abandonment, I began to wonder if sex was really just an excuse to look deeply into another human being's eyes. He's reflecting what the poet W.B. Yeats wrote years before. The tragedy of sexual intercourse is the perpetual virginity of the soul. You see, sometimes we turn to fulfilling our sexual desires simply because it's gratifying. I'm not going to deny that. But often we're looking for something deeper. We're looking for fulfillment. We're looking for connection. We're looking to be seen and known. And then we do it and we don't find it. And we're left feeling with that same longing, that perpetual virginity of the soul. And yet our culture tells us that sex will do the trick if you want to be known. Culture tells us that if you don't express your sexual desires, you can't possibly live a fulfilled life. We're taught that sexuality is our deepest need and identity. And if we don't express it, we're somehow truncating our humanity. And it's a lie. You are not your sexual desires. You're so much more than that. And a satisfied and fulfilled life does not depend upon gratifying your sexual desires or even being married. So what's the alternative? If we're supposed to abstain from sexual immorality, what are we abstaining for? Because God's desire is not abstinence for the sake of abstinence. God wants us to honor him with our bodies for what reason? To be loved by him. 
to be seen by him, to relieve the perpetual virginity of our souls so we can be known and, and loved by God in such a way that we feel the connection we're seeking and longing to find. You see, our culture says if you feel love, you should engage in sexual activities. But it's strange. The, the cultural understanding of love is saying go into sexual immorality. Christianity says love can actually help you overcome your sexual desires. That sincere love means you don't actually have to indulge in them because the love is satisfying enough. It's not incomplete without the action. This is why Paul immediately goes into verses 9 and 10 and says, Now concerning what? Brotherly and sisterly love. You have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And that's what you're doing. And with all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. Paul's talking about philia. This is a familial love. This is the love between siblings. And yet he always applies this to the church. The sort of love we're supposed to feel towards every single person in this room. This is what Paul's talking about. And what we've lost in our modern culture is an appreciation of the love that's available through spiritual friendship. See, in the classic writings, friendship was actually held above romantic love. It was held as a higher form of love than eros, the love that you would feel in a romantic partner. So, Scripture might call you to abstain from sexual activity, but God does not want to withhold love from you, not from him and not from others. He does not want to withhold deep life-forming and love-giving relationships from you. He does not want to withhold you from having that desire to see someone's eyes. He wants you to connect with the human soul. He does not want to leave you in a state, your soul in a state of perpetual virginity. You see, there's a love that's available in the family of Christ, a love that's available in this room that can sustain us as we overcome our sexual desires. Friends, we have to earnestly pray for God to make us into a church of deep spiritual friendship and that we might grow more and more in this. And I get it. It's so easy to be cynical about this to say that we're falling short, to say that these sort of relationships aren't possible, that we're not doing it right, but instead, I want to invite you to become the friend to someone else that you hope to have in your own life. I want to invite you to take courage and open up some space in your room and room in your heart for those in this room to journey with them in this pursuit of Christ and to say, I need a loving relationship whether single or married, I need spiritual friendships who can help me discern the way forward with Christ, who can shed tears with me and rejoice with me, who can know my dreams and my deepest insecurities. I need these relationships. So let's stop and pray now. Why, 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 why talk about it? Let's pray. Father, we can't create or manufacture the sort of relationships we're talking about. We need you, Lord, to grant us the courage to be seen and known by one another. We need you, Lord, to build spiritual friendship that can help us overcome sexual temptation, that can help us relieve that desire to be known and seen. Lord, we can't do this without you. We need you. Help us become friends to one another, to sustain one another in the good fight of faith. Amen.
You see, our witness to the world when it comes to sexual purity can't be about rule keeping, but about a better love. If someone's like, hey, why, why do Christians like, you know, go for the abstinence thing? You're like, because keeping rules is the way to go. That is not appealing. But if you say, well, I'm not actually really concerned about the abstinence piece. I, I have a love in my life that sustains and fulfills me in such a way. It's not that I don't feel sexual desires. I just don't need to act on it. I have a love with friends and with God that sustains me in such a way that I'm overcoming these desires day after day after day. That is appealing. Rule keeping is never a great witness. A better love is. Better love is. Finally, having you know, addressed what should we do with our bodies, Paul now addresses what should we do with our time. He writes in verse 11, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Work with your hands, as we've instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is perhaps the most instructive verse in Thessalonians about what it means to be a faithful presence. You see, we have an unknown amount of time to spend. And in our culture, I would argue we treasure time more than money. It is our most valuable commodity. And Paul says, how you use your time matters. He says, aspire or make it your ambition. He's pulling this word from their public realm. Uh, People would aspire, they would make it their ambition to have a reputation in society. So they would leverage everything they had, every relationship, every connection, every working moment to aspire to have notoriety in in the public realm and hence more influence. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're going to aspire, if you're going to use everything that you have, if you're going to leverage every moment of your time to achieve something, what would it be? Live a quiet life. What Paul seems to be saying is, uh, don't draw needless attention to yourself. Don't get caught up in controversies for the sake of controversy. Rather, live quietly, not loudly. And I get the irony of me telling you that right now. But live quietly and peacefully. Be present not dominant. Yes, there's going to be times where we need to speak up against injustice that's happening in society. Paul isn't saying be disengaged politically, be disengaged from issues going on in the world. What he is saying is that most of the time in your day-to-day ordinary life, make it your greatest ambition to live quietly, loving God and loving your neighbor more and more day after day. Some of us here, we've been instilled with this ambition. We've been told since our youth that we need to make a difference in the world. Has anyone heard that message? Is this a familiar message? That to matter in society, you must want to change the world to some degree. You must contribute some sort of goodness. And this isn't a bad ambition or desire. But what Paul is saying is that you're not going to change the world with your ambition alone. But your ambition to quietly live with Christ and have him transform your character. Paul is convinced that how you live quietly with Christ in moment after moment will be a greater witness to the world around you and what you're doing than changing everything that you possibly could change in society. Because we all know too well of leaders who make great changes, but they have no integrity or character and it compromises what they've done. Now, stepping back into the context, the Thessalonians were a young church. Uh, We have two letters to them. And what we can tell is that some of them expected Christ to return any moment now. 
which was the truth. Christ could return now. But so they quit their jobs. And, and Paul says, look, you've become busybodies. You're getting all up in each other's business. You're not living quietly. You're being nosy. And as a corrective, Paul says, keep working. Keep working. Be willing even to work with your hands, which is actually lowly labor in that culture. Paul's Paul saying shovel manure if you have to. It is better to work than not work. Don't be dependent on others to pick up the slack for you. Now, if you're unemployed and you're receiving financial support, this isn't what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who are choosing not to work, who can work, who have opportunities to work. Why does work matter to God? God, God created us to participate in cultivating the world, to be, participate in cultivating the earth. It's part of how we were made, and it's what fills most of our time. And so whether your vocation is raising children, teaching in schools, learning in school, engineering bridges, practicing law, or cleaning teeth, it all matters to God, every single piece of it. And so no matter what you do for your work, do good work. Aspire to live quietly within your workplace. Quietly modeling what it means to be a faithful presence. Quietly modeling what it looks like to follow Christ in every moment, every sphere of life. And always be willing to give an answer for the hope that is within you. You see, Paul uses work as an example to make this point. You are always a witness to Christ in the midst of the ordinary life you live. You can't hit pause on being a witness. If you identify as being a Christian, people are always observing you, period. You're always a witness. And so in all you do, you should be concerned. Is how I'm using my body, is what I'm doing with my time reflecting who Christ is, or is it diminishing his presence within me? And that's the heartbeat of God's will for our lives. That's the heartbeat of what God has for us. That's the heartbeat of sanctification. And that's why what we do with our bodies and our time matter before God. You see, he changes us, but not just for our own sake, for the sake of the world. And the good news, my friends, good news, is that for the long haul, all of this is not on your shoulders. When we respond to the gospel, when it grips us, Paul says God will give us both the desire and the will to work for his good pleasure. God will give you the desire. If you're like, none of this is appealing to me. I want to want this though. That's enough. God can work with that. If you're even a step removed, it's like, I want to want to want this. God can work with that. If you're lacking the desire whatsoever, say, God, grant me the desire. If you have the desire, but you're lacking the will, say, God, grant me the will. Our sanctification is always God's initiative. Our job is to surrender and receive what he has for us. The good news, my friends, is there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Sanctification is always an ongoing pursuit, but your justification is once and for all time. Nothing can separate you from the work of God in your life, and he will finish it. He will bring it to completion when he returns. So between now and then, we join God as he continues to renew our bodies, our minds, and our souls.